Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Well, Vice President Rosenberg, thank you so much for that warm introduction. It is a pleasure to be with you, with the other faculty and administrators and staff and students at BYU, and to once again be back in the beautiful state of Utah, even if it is just virtually. I also have to say what a beautiful way to start this morning. I want to thank um, Kirsty and Ariel for their contributions this morning. Uh, it's really a, a way to bring us together as a community, including those who aren't in the room with us today. Um, as you said, I am coming to you from the Commonwealth of Virginia. And I also come from another important institution of higher education, the University of Virginia, which is one of the oldest public institutions of higher education in the country. In fact, it was on October 6th of 1817 that three presidents, uh, then President Monroe and two former presidents, Madison and Jefferson, gathered to lay the cornerstone for UVA and what would become that university. In fact, Thomas Jefferson called the university, quote, the hobby of my old age. And its founding was among the three achievements that would later be etched into his tombstone, none of those being, none of them being the presidency. Each of those presidents that were gathered for that occasion were well-educated. They were well-read, they were well-traveled. Jefferson spoke at least four languages. If you ever have visited Monticello, and if you haven't, I hope you will, and you go into the library, you'll see the kinds of books that were on Jefferson's shelf in many different languages. And in fact, James Madison also spoke three languages and Monroe spoke two. The University of Virginia, however, was going to be Jefferson's crowning achievement when it came to public education, because he had failed in some other attempts to broaden access to education to those in, in the young country, as well as in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia. In fact, he had tried to open education for free girls and boys, um, elementary education, and secondary education for boys in the Commonwealth of Virginia. Unable to do that, the opportunity after his presidency to launch the University of Virginia was a dream come true. For those of you who haven't been to UVA, what you'll notice is that in the oldest part of the university, the library sits at the heart of UVA. And it sits in a rotunda that was designed to represent the authority of nature and the power of reason. Students who would attend based on Jefferson's design would live in the academical village, those buildings you see that jet out from the rotunda, from the library, and they would live among their professors. I don't know what those of you gathered here today think of that and how much fun that would be, but that was the idea that it would be a constant learning environment. And there they would learn language and study math and the physical sciences and anatomy and government and law and history. Most importantly, what Jefferson imagined 
was that once matriculating at the University of Virginia, that when, upon leaving, those who would gather there, those who had learned at the feet of those professors would go on to become involved and engaged citizens. He believed that people, at least those that he called the laboring and the learned, who are also white and male, are guardians of their own freedoms. But for citizens to become safe depositories of their freedom, they had to be educated. In fact, he wrote that access to higher education would enable them to make right choices of government, harmonize various aspects of the economy, and importantly, form the country's future leaders. But what does it mean to be educated? And what are the implications for our republic and for democracy? During our time together this morning, I want to consider that question from the earliest moments of our national history and ask what constitutes education, discuss the implications when we pick and choose who will be educated, and conclude with the ramifications for our democracy today. You know, we can't underestimate the importance of the enlightenment to the founders of this country and to our democracy. Philosophers and public intellectuals of the period questioned authority. In fact, when you think about the founding of this country, it was all about questioning of authority. They believed that society could be transformed through rational debate and reason thinking. And per Kant, dare to know, have courage to use your own reason. And while they disagreed with each other on a range of different issues, including on the issue of faith and the presence of an interactive God, and we'll come back to that in a few minutes, there was a steadfast belief in rational questioning and progress through dialogue as seen in the fundamental periods, principles of that period, the law of the natural world, the power of human reason, the natural rights of individuals, including the right to self-government, and the progressive improvement of society. In fact, our greatest modern discoveries, scientific discoveries, are rooted in this period. I mean, think about what you probably learned in elementary school, the scientific method. What I remember sitting in those classes is that we must observe and then we hypothesize, we test the hypothesis, we analyze and we draw conclusions. All that is rooted back to this period. Yet today in 2020, I think we find ourselves struggling with enlightenment principles. It feels to me like we're fighting the enlightenment all over again. We dismiss facts that we don't like and sometimes we characterize knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge as being elitist. For example, Science Magazine reports that regardless of scientific consensus, so regardless of the facts, regardless of the data, people across the ideological spectrum object to public policy on everything from the regulation of nuclear power and childhood vaccination to climate change and the regulation of coal production. This summer, and some of you may remember this, a high-ranking public official said when she was discussing COVID-19 and whether or not we were going to reopen our public schools, quote, the science should not stand in the way of this. Think about that. The science should not stand in the way of this. That those facts, that data shouldn't get in the way of the decision that we want to make. 
Here, science and facts part, are part of a zero-sum game that were in conflict with a government decision. So what does a well-informed public do with facts when their government chooses to ignore them? I ask that because it's clear that's what at stake extends beyond a debate about science. What's at stake is our ability to meet the threshold of what's required of us as citizens, a robust understanding of the world around us, a command of information, facility with the mechanics of our government such that we might use reason and logic to hold elected officials accountable. What's at stake is small r Republican self-governance. You know, Jefferson believed citizens had to be prepared to discuss the issues of the day and to make critical decisions, quote, at the bar of public reason. When he was in Paris in the late 1700s, he wrote to the British moral philosopher Richard Bryce and said, wherever the people are well-informed, they can be trusted with their own government, that whenever things get so far wrong as to attract their notice, they may be relied on to set them to rights. So how well equipped are we to do this today? Well, there was a study done in 2010 that shows that there are more Americans who are able to identify Michael Jackson as a composer of some songs than who know that there are 10 amendments that are part of the Bill of Rights. When asked what century the American Revolution took place and whether the Civil War, the War of 1812, and the Emancipation Proclamation preceded or came after the revolution, more than 30% of respondents answered the question incorrectly. And more than a third of Americans didn't know that the Bill of Rights included and guaranteed a right to trial by jury, but mistakenly believed that the Bill of Rights included the right to vote. Now things didn't get much better a few years later. In 2015, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni did a study and more than 80% of seniors at high ranking colleges and universities, top ranked institutions would have received a grade of D or F on the survey that was done. And just think about this. And those of you in this room who are matriculating at BYU, think about this. Roughly half of the students couldn't tell this organization the length of the term of a senator or a representative in the United States Congress. It is hard, it is virtually impossible to hold elected officials accountable if you don't understand civics, if you don't understand how our country works, and going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago, if you don't understand and are able to reason, to use facts and information to draw conclusions, to go back to the enlightenment, to question authority and to come to conclusions that are based on fact and reason and ask your elected officials, those that you have consented to govern, you in an act of self-governance, why they've made the decisions they've made. Now, often when we start the conversation and about education and we talk about reason and facts, faith and religion are edited out of the conversation. 
Instead of ideas concerning God and reason being synthesized in some quarters, there is an effort to pit one against the other. I imagine that this is important to you just as it is to me and to other people of faith. We know that this is an age old battle. We only have to turn the pages of history to see the conflict among scientists and those from the faith community and leaders and politicians. See Galileo, see the Scopes trial, just click through the internet today and you will find that conflict, you'll find that tension over and over and over again. But what have we learned about the relationship between reason and religion? Does being religious and being educated mean that we have to work, walk on divergent paths? Do we have to choose one over the other? One of the most revered biologists in the world would say, absolutely not. Some of you may be familiar with the work of Dr. Francis Collins. He's head of the National Institutes of Health, uh, put in more present day terms, he's Dr. Fauci's boss. And I had the privilege of working with Francis Collins um, when I was in the Obama administration. But perhaps he's best known for his work leading the Human Genome Project the effort that revolutionized the practice of medicine when, in Dr. Collins's words, they completed the first draft of the human book of life. Collins and his team's survey of the genome forever changed the way that diseases are studied and diagnosed and treated and prevented. And some would say that he knows better than almost anyone how some scientists armed with research that informs who we are as human beings believe that faith is irrelevant. In fact, Dr. Collins, who grew up in the church, was an atheist until he was 27 years old. And then at that time, he was serving as a resident in a North Carolina uh, hospital. And he had spent quite a bit of time with the patient, sitting with that patient day after day, until finally one day the patient looked at him and said, you know, I've, I've told you a lot about me. I told you what I believe, but you haven't told me anything about what you believe. That was the beginning of the end of Dr. Collins's atheism. What he did from that moment was to at first set about looking for ways to prove the patient wrong. He had a conversation with a Methodist pastor and it was his intention in that conversation to gather the information he could so that he could validate his atheist beliefs. Instead, the pastor introduced Dr. Collins to the book, Mere Christianity, authored by the Oxford scholar, C.S. Lewis. And in reading that book, Dr. Collins was convinced that a close examination of the facts would lead one to believe that it is more rational to choose to believe and a better choice to choose to believe than not to believe. Based on his own journey from atheism to Christianity, Dr. Collins founded the organization Biologos, Biologos, which has as its mission to show that science and faith are not in conflict with one another. And let me just share with you something that he said. I'm privileged to be somebody who tried to understand nature using the tools of science but it is also clear that there are some really important questions that science can't really answer, such as 
Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we here? In those domains, I have found that faith provides a better path to answers. I find it oddly anachronistic that in today's culture, there seems to be a widespread presumption that scientific and spiritual views are incompatible. And in fact, going back to the Galileo and the Scopes trial that I mentioned a few moments ago, Dr. Collins would argue this. He would argue that Galileo's biggest challenge was arrogance, that in fact, he provoked the Pope who was willing to believe some of the ideas, some of the conceptions that Galileo was putting forth at that time. And at the time of the Scopes trial, there were significant portions of the Christian community that embraced the new perspective that was being argued by Darwin. Dr. Collins and other scientists, and if we look at data we, and studies, about 40% of scientists deploy the craft of their discipline and a deepening examination of faith to gain a more robust understanding of the world and that which exists beyond. Ultimately, I think that the knowledge that we gain when we're studying history and science and government and math and art and religion, all of that is vitally important. But also important is our embrace of an enlightenment frame of mind, probing authority, learning to frame and ask questions, analyzing ideas, drawing our own conclusions from fact and information and our beliefs. The disciplines we study provide us with information, but the process we go through in studying them help us to become better educated. So that raises another question. Does education only take place in a classroom? Can it only take place inside those four walls at BYU or at the University of Virginia or the high schools or elementary schools that you attended? Well, I wanna start out by telling you a story. It's a story about my grandmother. She was born in Halifax County, Virginia in 1906 and she loved to learn. In fact, my mother told me that when she was a young girl and she was a teenager and she would sit at the kitchen table and study, that often my grandmother would come and sit beside her and ask her questions. And she just had a thirst for education and for knowledge. My grandmother ultimately wanted what she had been denied. As with so many African-American children during that period of time, when resources were scarce and Jim Crow was on the rise, and when the rights and responsibilities of citizenship were all but denied to them, her parents determined that school was over. That because of the family responsibilities, because of the lean times, that she would need to go to work to earn resources, to earn money to help her family. And so my grandmother wasn't able to complete high school. Now, when my mother and I used to talk about this, my mom would tell me how fearful she was that if people learned that my grandmother had not completed high school, that they would think that she was unintelligent. But I can tell you from my time with my grandmother that she was anything but. She was highly intelligent and she was very, very savvy. And in fact, it was that intelligence 
that led her to ensure that her children were educated, to ensure that my mother attended college at a time when very few, in fact, few Americans of any race were getting a, a degree from an institution of higher education, but a very small percent, probably in the late 1950s, less than 3% of African-Americans had a higher education degree. Now, ironically, that experience is one thing that my grandmother had in common with George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. While many of the framers of the Constitution, many of the founders of this country were educated at places like Harvard or Princeton or William and Mary, neither Washington nor Benjamin Franklin attended college or university. In fact, Franklin was forced to drop out of school at the age of 10 to help his family in their candle making shop. As he once said, a Bible and a newspaper in every house, a good school in every district, all studied and appreciated as they merit, are the principal support of virtue, morality, and civil liberty. Now, I want to give you one other example before we talk about this a little bit in a little bit more depth, and that is the life of Fannie Lou Hamer. I don't know how many of you gathered today or watching know about Fannie Lou Hamer. So let me just tell you a little bit about her. She was born a few years after my grandmother in 1917 in Montgomery County, Mississippi. She was the 20th and last child of a family that grew up in grinding poverty and sharecropping in Mississippi. At the age of six, she was picking cotton at the age of 12, she had dropped out of school for the same reasons that my grandmother was, um, to pick cotton full time. She married when, in 1944, and she and her husband, Perry Pat Hamer, worked at a plantation that was owned by B.D. Marlowe. She was the only worker there, the only one there who could read or write. And as a result, she was the plantation timekeeper. By 1961, she had started to attend meetings um, about the civil rights movement. And she attended a meeting that was led by James Foreman um, and a man named James Bevel, who were with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. She ultimately went on to become a community organizer to work to make sure that African-Americans in Mississippi would be able to register to vote in the early 1960s. She put her life on the line to try and secure those basic rights of citizenship for African-Americans. And in so doing, she was harassed, she lost her job, she and her husband lost their property. But after successfully registering to vote in 1963, Hamer and several of the women that she was working with were arrested and they were jailed and it was in jail that they were brutally, brutally beaten. In fact, that beating left her with injuries to her kidneys and to her eye and to her leg. But that didn't stop Fannie Lou Hamer. She went on to co-found the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And the objective of that organization was to ensure African-American political participation and to challenge the validity of the all-white Mississippi Democratic Party and the seating of those delegates at the 1964 Democratic Convention. In a truth to power moment, and it can only be described such, Fannie Lou Hamer, armed with a sixth grade education 
and what she had learned organizing in the Deep South tried to bring about change at that convention. She testified before the convention and she took on the political power structure of the state of Mississippi and the United States of America. And while she wasn't successful in 1964, four years later at the convention in 1968, she would receive a thunderous standing ovation when she would become the first woman and the first African-American, well, the first woman from Mississippi and the first African-American since Reconstruction to take her rightful seat as an official delegate of a national party convention. Now, let me be clear about something. I am not diminishing the importance of formal education. Like my grandmother, Fannie Lou Hamer should have had the opportunity to learn in a classroom. She should have had a real opportunity to go to school. What's learned in classrooms like those that you are able to sit in at BYU, that I sat in at the University of North Carolina, the University of Michigan Law School, that I've taught in at the University of Virginia, everything that happens there is so valuable. But what I am arguing is that we have to appreciate the knowledge acquired in formal settings and in informal settings beyond the ivory tower. Our ability to reason, knowledge of the natural world, familiarity and comfort with people who are not like we are, our perspective, all that gets informed by what we learn beyond these four walls. I think about my husband who was born in Los Angeles, California, and then grew up with a single mother in the prairies of Canada, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada. He was part of a large and loving Mennonite family. And like so many of his peers had done that he had gone to high school with, when he was in college, he took what, what he jokingly refers to as his self-designed junior year abroad. And in that year, he went to Greece and to Morocco and to Tunisia, the former Yugoslavia, to Spain and to Italy. And in fact, he credits his time in Florence with shaping so many of the things that he loves and cares about today. And I can remember the trips that we've taken there and sitting in a square in Florence. And we sat on a bench and he said, you know, I think it was exactly in this spot that I really came to grips with a deep, deep appreciation for culture and for art and for food and for wine and for many of the things that I got to experience as a young man when I spent that time abroad and my time here in Florence. He can draw a direct connection between that experience and who he is today. And similarly, I have to imagine, but I don't know, all that you all learn as you observe and you ponder, as you do mission work outside of the communities which you're from and perhaps outside of the United States. The world has a great deal to teach us and we have to be open to those lessons if we are to truly be educated. Now, my grandmother's experience and that of Fannie Lou Hamer's sit at the intersection of race and gender and class in our country. 
But historically, education for women and girls has always been contested ground. Robust education was the province of white male property owners who were also America's first citizens. I don't know how many of you watching are fans of the musical Hamilton. I don't know if, if you've seen Hamilton, whether it's on TV or on Broadway, raise your, raise your hand, or if you've read about it. Okay, I've seen some hands go up. So you then may remember the scene when we're introduced to Eliza, Angelica, and Peggy Schuyler. Angelica tells us that she's been reading Thomas Paine's Common Sense. And she goes on to say, you want a revolution? I want a revelation. So listen to my declaration. And then the three sisters go on to quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. And Angelica chimes in to say, and when I meet Thomas Jefferson, I'm gonna compel him to include women in that sequel. Well, Lin-Manuel Miranda's libretto aligns with history. Writing about Jefferson and what he calls democratic schooling, scholar James Carpenter reminds us of Dr. Linda Kerber's statement, even the most radical American men had not intended to make a revolution in the status of their wives and sisters. Carpenter goes on to note that a woman's role within the family expanded to the extent that they were expected to raise the virtuous male citizens on whom the health of the Republic depended. In the early days of the Republic, free women weren't given equal access to education. Boys were given taxpayer-funded town schools that girls could only attend in the summer months. And girls weren't widely attending those schools throughout the school year until about 1830. Although 18th and 19th century students were learning reading and writing and arithmetic, girls were also learning needlework and painting and music while boys were studying philosophy and Greek and Latin and history. The paradigm was different for girls who were coming from wealthy families who could afford private tutors that taught them the subjects boys were learning but higher education for women was off the table until Oberlin College admitted them in 1837. The difference in education for girls and boys, young women and young men, was predicated on the lives imagined for women and men, including their societal roles and their lives as citizens. Daughters, then wives and mothers, women worked seen as or educated to be thinkers or doers or breadwinners or voters, at least not for generations to come. Education and full citizenship were bound together and were out of reach for women who were relegated to a low rung on the ladder of American society. Now earlier, some of us were talking about the book Cast. It was written recently by a woman named Isabel Wilkerson, who won a Pulitzer Prize for one of her earlier books. And I, I would dare to venture that this one is at least going to be in the running. And in the book cast, she writes, throughout human history, three caste systems have stood out. The tragically accelerated, chilling and officially vanquished caste system of Nazi Germany, the lingering millennia long caste system in India, and the shape-shifting, unspoken, race-based caste pyramid in the United States. 
Each version relied on stigmatizing those deemed inferior to justify the dehumanization necessary to keep the lowest ranked people at the bottom and to rationalize the protocols of enforcement. What people look like, or rather the race they have been assigned or are perceived to belong to, is a visible cue to their caste. It is a historical flashcard to the public of how they are to be treated, where they're expected to live, whether they should be expected to speak with authority on this or that subject. Well, education plays an important role in the caste system that Wilkerson describes. And while free men and women would be educated in part of the country, in the earliest years of the nation, access, deemed essential to the exercise of the rights and responsibilities of citizenship, was withheld from both slaves and free people of African descent in much of the United States. Here's one example of many in the United States. You'll see the slave code, uh, the Alabama Slave Code of 1833, that took aim at both slaves and free blacks hoping to become literate and those who tried to help them. The fines at that time for even beginning to think that you were going to help someone to learn to read or to spell or to write. Harper's Weekly published an article that stated, quote, the alphabet is an abolitionist. If you would keep a people enslaved, refuse to teach them to read. The painful irony is that many of the men and women who were enslaved were not only denied education, but in numerous instances, including at Brown University, Georgetown, and Harvard, they were brought to university campuses to attend to students and faculty. And the resources from the slave trade were often used to fund those universities and others themselves. From 1817 to 1865, over 4,000 enslaved individuals labored at the University of Virginia, clearing land, digging foundations, fetching water, chopping and stacking wood, cleaning and completing daily chores for students and professors, cooking, molding and firing brick, doing complex carpentry work, roofing, transporting and carving quarried stone, blacksmithing and making clothing. One of the most compelling descriptions of the intellectual bondage imposed on slaves and free men and women comes from Frederick Douglass. He was born a slave in Talbot County, Maryland in 1818 and ultimately became one of the country's most prominent abolitionists authors, orators, and public servants. He was one of the fortunate ones, able to use his immense gifts because he was lucky enough, lucky enough to slip through the almost impenetrable filter that separated blacks from education. In March of 1826, he was sent to Baltimore to be the boyhood companion of the son of Sophia and Hugh Auld, as part of the redistribution of slaves from the plantation where he had labored. Living in a home with a woman who was unfamiliar with slaveholding, Douglas was given the opportunity that changed his life. He was taught to read. The gift given was taken away when Sophia Auld's husband, Hugh, pointed out the dangers associated with teaching Frederick to read. 
If he's taught to read the Bible, quote, it would forever unfit him for the duties of a slave. Learning would do him no good, but probably a great deal of harm, making him disconsolate and unhappy. But in spite of the dictate to end Frederick Douglass's education, the fire of knowledge had been lit. According to biographer David Blight, Douglas smuggled newspapers and even books in the house and even into his bed, which was up in a loft. He later purchased what he called, Douglas called, the book that changed my life. After noticing that white boys studied history and Republican values, prose, plays, speeches by philosophers and political thinkers in the Colombian orator. In Douglas's words, the increase of knowledge was attended with bitter as well as sweet results. The more I read, the more I was led to abhor and detest slavery and my enslavers. Now a different approach was taken with Native Americans, Americans who were sent to boarding schools to be reshaped in the image of white men. The Indian Removal Act of 1830 forced Native Americans to territory west of the Mississippi to make room for U.S. expansion as the growing population of whites continued to expand. Late in the 19th century, boarding schools or residential schools were established. In 1885, the Commissioner of Indian Affairs, Hugh Hiram Price, explained the logic. He said, it's cheaper to give them education than to fight them. Schools were designed to, quote, kill the Indian but save the man, and the U.S. government forced tens of thousands of Native Americans to attend assimilation boarding schools that were open well into the 20th century. The assimilation process was nothing short of brutal. Those individuals were given Anglo names. Imagine being given a different name, clothes, and haircuts. They were told they were inferior to white people and forced to abandon their language and their way of life. In a 1920s report, it was concluded that children at federal, those federal boarding schools were malnourished, overworked, harshly punished, and poorly educated. In 1969, a report declared Indian education to be a national tragedy. Whether the thin education given girls and poor white Americans the attempt to acculturate Native Americans in a despicable system and later to underfund support schools that were run by the Bureau of Indian Affairs, or withhold and then segregate and later underfund education for African Americans. The effect has been profound. It has shaped our culture and sense of American identity, including a warped non-factual perception of who is intelligent, who has and should contribute to economic and civic life. It stunted a fulsome realization of our democracy's aspirations. And we've denied education to everyone, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of ethnicity, because our historic approach to education has also affected our view of whose history and whose contributions will be told and how they will be told. We are all undereducated because we fail to tell the complete American story. We fail to conclude in our curriculum that which is painful, that which challenges generations old conceptions of supremacy and those considered 
unimportant. In fact, recently in the Commonwealth of Virginia, that headline was published in newspapers after a commission studied history and what is being taught in our classrooms and spoke to the incompleteness of our state curriculum and the work that would have to be done so we would all fully understand it. My parents still talk about what they learned and what they taught when they were in school in the 1940s and 1950s. And I have conversations with friends today, whether white or African-American or Latino or Native American or Asian American about the deficit in our collective education as a result of the way that we have thought about education, who should be educated and what we should be taught. So what does this tell us about what it means to be educated? And what have we learned from our history? The earliest efforts to expand public education were in furtherance of small r Republican goals, namely the stability and sustainability of the new country, and in some cases, religious training. Those deemed eligible for citizenship would be able to participate in politics and economic life in the ways that I discussed earlier. And using Jefferson, Jefferson's efforts as an example, while forward-leaning for the period, as scholar James Carpenter argues, for Jefferson, the purposes for citizen education were narrowly defined for a political agenda grounded in the context of an established social and political hierarchy in Virginia at that time. At the time of the country's founding, education was decidedly not democratic. I'm not ignoring those early efforts to try to expand access. And again, I think it's important to understand the expansion that was taking place, a new way of thinking that was different than what was happening in Europe at the time at the founding of the country. But what many strive for today, universal access to education, the acquisition of knowledge for knowledge sake, and education as a means of social and economic mobility, those things weren't represented in early American education. And while our actions today can't always be used as a measure, surely, surely we've learned that to be educated as a nation, our Republican principles and our democratic aspirations must be aligned. It's not only the obvious moral choice, but the threats to liberal democracy range from significant to existential. And each and every one of us must be prepared to discern fact from fiction, to question and to analyze and to draw the best conclusions. Just take a few issues that are in front of us today, climate change. It will radically and permanently change our communities and the globe. We are witnessing that today and it only continues to accelerate. Now in some places, in some communities, its existence is not always accepted. As a general matter, it is, but not in all quarters. But in the United States is an outlier when it comes to international coordination and we're lagging in our global response because we haven't been able to grapple with, to use the facts, to apply pressure as citizens where necessary. And the ramifications are dire. 
Concerns about rising water levels and drought affect everything from maintenance of species to famine to significant movements of populations that not only may, but already have catalyzed increased conflict around the globe. And which one of us doesn't consider the implications of technology in our daily lives? Now, social media has honed in on the natural aspect of being human the desire to connect with other people. And we all know that we are reusing it in many ways that are fundamental to our, well, to our sanity right now as we navigate this pandemic. Social media has allowed us to make those connections, made it easier for us to stay in touch with friends and family, no matter where we are in the globe. It's expanded access to promotional opportunities for artists and for entrepreneurs and authors and leaders of other kinds and it's further enabled the free exchange of ideas. But simultaneously, some platforms have also become a tool to spread false information, to threaten our privacy, for political manipulation and for foreign espionage. Social media platforms and the advancing world of artificial intelligence have and will continue to change the definition of an authentic human experience raising philosophical and economic and other questions. How can we manage technology without technology managing us? And a final example, American identity. Like no other in two generations, this past summer has brought us face to face with an old question. Can we live peacefully, cooperatively in a multicultural democracy? What does it mean to be American culturally, politically, and economically? After a summer of uprisings in communities across the country, it appears the implications of not being able to answer those questions, not being able to grapple with those issues, those implications are well known. Our divided house will not stand, not in a manner that ensures individuals and the nations prosper. Democracy is not guaranteed. So the question for us is what's next? Well, I think to be educated gives us the tools to take on those questions and the best chance to answer them. It is to build our formal system of education so we're able to engage, to challenge orthodoxy with conscience and with purpose to reason, to innovate, and to move forward. It is to ensure that everyone, everyone, has access to that kind of an education so that we're all the wiser. It is to consciously gain and value experiences outside of the classroom to develop empathy and to a sense of self and others. To be educated assures us of nothing more and nothing less than the ability to engage life's most complex challenges, to build and strengthen our body politic and our democracy, and to live a life of meaning. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage. Overcoming Adversity, by Study and by Faith. Come follow me, the Prophet Joseph Smith, 
in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.